Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome back to Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender-affirming parenting podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. I am your host, Linz Amer. Hello, everyone. We're back after two weeks of hiatus with a few more episodes, three more episodes to round out our second season of the podcast. And today I have an extra special guest. I say that about everyone because it's true. (laughs) We've talked about them and their work with multiple guests in previous episodes leading up to this one. And they're someone who's been in the field for a while who I really admire. We're talking to Corey Silverberg, who wrote What Makes a Baby, the incredible picture book that has queer and trans-inclusive ways of talking about reproduction for the very young. They also have their book, Sex is a Funny Word, and their most recent book, you know, Sex. Way back when I was making Queer Kid Stuff, I did an episode where I read What Makes a Baby because it just blew me away the first time that I read it. And it has still been a go-to book when folks ask for recommendations of how do I talk about sex with kids? How do I talk about reproduction? How do I talk about bodies in a queer and gender-inclusive way? And Corey's books are always the first thing that I recommend. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to them, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we get there, just a real quick business. We're trying to keep it short and sweet. It is the end of the year, and that means the holidays are coming up. We are doing a special limited edition end-of-year merch sale. We have shirts and crewneck sweatshirts of our design saying a friend of Teddy's. I was really inspired by the phrase a friend of Dorothy's, which is a code phrase that was used in the 40s and 50s around that era historically uh, when The Wizard of Oz came out. And that's how you could tell that another person was part of the LGBTQ plus community when it had to be more underground than it is today. So I figured it was tough being a queer person then. It's tough being a queer person now. How can we bring that phrase into the modern fight for our rights? And I thought it would be really fun to uh, repurpose it for queer kid stuff. So we came up with a friend of Teddy's. It's in t-shirts. It's in crew neck sweatshirts. You can get them in adult sizes and in kid sizes and lots of different sizes on the scale there through Bonfire. You can check out the link in the episode description for that to get your t-shirt. I think they're pretty cute. (laughs) It's uh, a little weird to wear my own face on my chest, but uh, it is worth it because this t-shirt is uh, pretty cute, I gotta say. So make sure you check out that campaign over on Bonfire for the A Friend of Teddy's merch. All right, that's enough of me talking. Let's get to my conversation with Corey. Hello, my friends. I am here with Corey Silverberg. Hello, Corey. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. You're someone who I've had on my list for a while, someone I've known in this space for a long time, and we've never actually met before. So I'm I'm really excited to just dig into it with you. So before we get into the conversation, can you just tell us um, your pronouns and how you identify? Sure. I mean, <laughs> I say sure, but uh, I'll give you the short version, which is I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people who don't 
really like talking about pronouns. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of a queer person that doesn't like pronouns. <laughs> there are there are plenty. <laughs> there are plenty. There are plenty. But uh, so so they them is fine. Um, I'm a 50-ish uh, white Jewish person. Uh, I am queer. Um, I smile a lot when I talk, which people can't see on a podcast. Yeah, sure. That'll be. We'll leave. We'll leave it there for now. Who knows what will come up? I. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful description. I love that. Um, I, I I say this all the time, but like everyone who comes onto this podcast takes that question in a different way and a different interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I so, so appreciate what everyone brings of themselves to this space. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love that you talk about how you smile when you talk, um, especially <laughs> because no one can see you because <laughs> right. it's a podcast. So I also like to come to this space like as full humans like Mm -hmm. encompassing of our work, but also of just like, we are people who are living in the world right now. And that can be great. And it can also be really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of wondering how you're doing today. Uh, I'm okay today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say I'm okay. I mean, as you said, it's not sometimes you just don't want to go to bed. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. Uh, For me, that sort of if I have to be on the internet, that usually makes me less likely to want to talk to people. And then when I get to be around people mm-hmm. in real life, it makes me usually um, happier. So I have been mostly by myself today. It's where I am. It's 12 noon. So, uh, yeah, so I'm doing okay. How are you? You know, I, I'm doing all right. We've had, mm-hmm. it was a tough weekend for the mm-hmm. queer community in America. And so mm-hmm. I'm sitting with that a little bit just for, we're recording the Monday after the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs. Um, so I'm sitting with that. And also we have a short work week this week in America mm-hmm. as well. Oh, um, right, so, right, right. oh that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, trying to do that and also travel and going to see family. So I'm holding a lot right now and just trying to be present and um, be with you <laughs> in this conversation, um, which is always uh, a task. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but a very exciting task today because I get to talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to say it makes me think of this funny thing about like this the way that like adults treat young people, which mm-hmm. is always not great. Which is of yeah. course it's all as you just said. It's always hard to kind of be present in a space, mm-hmm. and we and I do it too. Uh, but but adults are constantly telling people to pay attention, mm-hmm. right? And I just I'm always imagine like what would it be like if you were trying to just like get through the day and you had someone just mm-hmm. every now and again come into your office and say pay attention. Oh my gosh, yeah. Because because not, not only is it kind of like not a great thing to do, but it's just so counterproductive. It's actually not saying pay attention. It's kind of like saying relax. Mm. It's not a very relaxing thing to do to say relax. No, it's not. I feel like I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I've been going through like a journey of understanding my neurodivergence. And so much of it is like deconstructing the inner pay attention. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's very, the, the pay attention, the racks are both quite ableist. So yes, exactly. Yes. yes. When we will get into that. Um, On that note, um, can you tell the people who you are and what you do and kind of a little bit about why you're here? I think you probably know why you're here. Um, I I guess I do. Um, So I'm a writer. I'm a sex educator and I'm a writer. And around 11 years ago, I started rewriting books for kids about sex and gender to write the books that I wish I had. Mm -hmm. Um, I was someone who grew up with a lot of those books, but none of them really fit for me. So... um, we self-published this book called What Makes a Baby, and then it became so popular that a publisher asked us if they could publish it, and then they wanted to publish two other books, so we signed a three-book deal. And so over the past 10 years, Fiona Smith and I have been writing these books for young people, but also for adults that are kind of, a, you know, they're about sex and they're about gender, but 
they're also just about sort of how to be in the world and how to, you know, survive in a world where people keep telling you to pay attention and relax. Yes. <laughs> so I do that. And then I also, I, you know, I spend a lot of my time, if I'm not writing, talking to parents and talking to young people and talking to professionals. So it's sort of trying to get them to think about gender differently and think about what the word sex means in different ways. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. So let's get into it. Let's start. I didn't actually know that What Makes a Baby was self-published. So can you... It was, yeah, we used, yeah, we actually used Kickstarter. It was a long time ago. Mm. So Kickstarter is this crowdfunding way of raising money to do a thing, to make art. And I had taken it to some publishers and they had, they have not, not many, but a few. And they had said, no, this isn't for us. It's too niche. Yeah. Because the book was written for families, for a family I was, you know, that I was very close to. Mm. Um, and the dad was trans and they had a four-year-old and they were about to have another kid. Mm. So in that family, the dad didn't have any sperm in his body, but that's the story. All the stories say like, oh, you get your sperm from your dad, your egg from your mom. And so there was no book. There's no book for this kid who was now starting to have questions about like what's happening because their mom was visibly pregnant. So I wrote a story really just for him. And then it was fun to do. And then I read it with him and I read it with some other kids. And then it became very clear that it was something that was needed and, and was really needed by all sorts of families. So we decided to, and again, no publisher wanted it at the time. So I decided to just do it myself with my friends. Mm-hmm. So I had, we had, I had Fiona Smith, who's an illustrator who had made her own comic books already. And then a book designer. And then we kind of went out and said like, oh, we want to make this book. And so many people said yes and bought the book in advance. So we had raised, we raised more money than anyone had ever raised on that platform before. Mm-hmm. And so that was great. And so then we published it. And then shortly after Seven Stories Press, which is my publisher, mm. published their edition, which is exa- the exact same. And then we're like, you should do more. So that first one was for like very young kids, sort of four to six year olds. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next one was for seven to nine year olds. And this most recent one is for around 10 and up. It's really the most recent one is for kids who are starting puberty. Mm. This is, yeah, this is just like opening up so much. Um, mm-hmm. So much of I, uh, the work that I do, the work that you do, the work of a lot of the folks that I talk to on this podcast comes from seeing a gap, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing a space that is not being filled by any kind of media that exists out there. And there's a lot of media that exists Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the general world. And I love that your first book, What Makes a Baby, came out of a conversation and a need from one very specific family because there there weren't resources out there at that moment that could help that conversation. And so I something I I absolutely love what makes a baby and it's what kind of got me onto your work and I think it's something a book that has really stood the test of time and I'm really curious just like as you were starting to write that for this family and like I and I love that that was so specific um it was a very specific conversation that you were wanting mm-hmm. to have and what I love about this book is that you make gender inclusive and trans inclusive language around reproduction feel so easy. Like (laughs) this is how, like when I read that book for the first time, I was like, Oh, duh, this is how (laughs) we should be talking about this. (laughs) So I, I'm really curious about getting into your head a little bit about the initial process behind writing it and like kind of really starting the conversation about how we can use trans and gender inclusive language around reproduction with kids. So yeah. let me tell me a little bit more about how like how you approach that conversation. Well, I mean, the way is to use language that kids use, right? So mm-hmm. the re- the reason that it's so simple, and and this is, you know, many people have this experience of like, oh, I mean, also people were often surprised, like, wait, there wasn't a book like this before. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it evolved 
through my conversations with young people. So mm. by keeping language very kind of clear and, and specific, so it's not about being too general, but being mm-hmm. specific, but also very open and accessible, uh, you end up with something that works for everyone. You know, in part, because part of what we did, like it was less sort of like, let's write something that's specifically, I mean, I, obviously I wanted to be trans inclusive because I was writing for a trans family, mm-hmm. but it was more about like getting gender out of the way. So in that book, which is, you know, it's a very short book. It's for, it's a picture book. So it's 32 pages and has, I don't know, maybe 750 words there. The task was more like, you know, we don't need gender here, right? So the book is not gender free. There's like lots of gender in the book, yeah. Um, but there is no gender when we're talking about sperm or egg because mm-hmm. sperm and egg aren't gendered. Um, sperm and egg get sex. They get talked about as female or male, but that's a decision that, you know, the medical industrial complex has decided to make yes. and that we all have to live with, but we don't actually have to, we don't have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess there's two things. First is like, we take gender out where it doesn't belong. Mm. And also I don't, I, I don't feel beholden to medicine. Mm. Right. So, I mean, so the book was also very inspired. Um, oh no, now I'm going to forget her name. That's terrible. There's a famous anthropologist whose first name is Emily and her last name is totally escaping me. And she's super famous. And she did research <laughs> in sort of fertility medicine mm. and was the one who sort of wrote this book about, it was, I think it was called the sperm and the egg where she pointed out like, so what they're doing is they're calling eggs girls. Right. And they're also mm. talking about, so for example, a classic misunderstanding in most kids books is that they have a picture of an egg and literally sometimes the egg is wearing a tutu and it's like, kind of like not lying down exactly, but it's being passive. Mm. Right. And the sperm are marching. And sometimes in some books that I've seen, they're actually like, there's like military references Ugh. to like visually to like this sort of mm. marching forward. Yeah. Um, and of course, what we've learned is it isn't just that the sperm penetrate an egg. The sperm, the sperm is not doing all the work. In fact, the egg and the body the egg is in mm. produces all these environments that make it possible for sperm to merge with an egg. So the way, you know, she pointed out that the way the story about how conception happens is gendered in ways that are not science at all. Mm -hmm. So having grown up with that, Martin, Emily Martin, Hmm. (laughs) having grown up, I didn't grow up with it, but having learned about it when I was in probably high school in in my twenties, I didn't feel beholden. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and also I grew up in a family where sex education was part of you know, there was always sex education. Mm. So it was easier for me to just throw out the nonsense, which I mean, for me, it's nonsense. You know, it's only nonsense when we pretend that it's universal, right? So Mm. I love that everybody has a story. There should be stories for every kid should see their story, but the stories don't have to be presented as if this is how it works for everyone, right? Mm. And that's the problem, right? It's not It's not that I think everything needs to be queer or everything needs to be gender neutral. Like I'm not down with that either. It is that we, we need to stop pretending that, heteronormativity and gender normativity are actually kind of universal facts as opposed to just like Mm. this thing that we made up that we now all feel pressured to continue to pretend is what's normal. Yes. You're 100% speaking my language. And I love the idea that like getting down to the science and also just like stripping away what is like almost like excess, like that is, that is kind of like muddying the story of like our bodies. Right. And I think that like, you do that so beautifully through all of your books as well. And I think you're thinking in different ways as you're moving up in age range, because I think that like, and I want to get into that, I'm mostly in early childhood and I don't tend to go into um, the higher ages. And mm-hmm. But I really do love the idea that like young kids today can grow up with your books through like toddlerhood, through 
puberty now because right. I mean, hope. yeah, exactly. And mm. I think that that's a really beautiful thing that you're able to kind of craft a story of body and gender and identity for young people. Because I mean, I whenever I think about your books, I'm like, okay, I grew up with the American girl taking taking care of your body, or, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I I think I've like flipped through it online, like maybe like once or twice now <laughs> as a grown human, and. Like, I remember, like, there being, like, one page on PMS and, like, it not right. actually giving a definition and, and me, right. like, flipping to the next page and be like, where's the rest of the information? <laughs> and, like, the bodies being depicted or just, like, all, like, skinny, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not diverse. And so, before I get into the next book, I want to talk a little bit about your collaboration with your illustrator mm -hmm. um, and how that partnership kind of came about. Because I think that the, the visual aesthetic for your books is so... So unique and yeah. specific yeah. in the same way that your language is. Um, yeah. And so I, and I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your partnership with Fiona. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we knew each other before. So we were mm. friends and we had actually worked together a little bit. Um, and she's certainly the person that I wanted to do the first book. And she hesitated because uh, drawing babies is hard, apparently. <laughs> baby heads, apparently baby heads are hard. Huh. Um, but I was like, you can do it. Because I mean, and I should say like her earlier work was not for kids at all. So her mm -hmm. earlier work was absolutely adult. It was very feminist and it mm -hmm. had a lot to do with sex in the body. And, and she had been a, a, a comic maker for years and also a painter who had been told like, you have to tone down the sex if you want to get more sort of like, you know, commercial work. Yeah. Um, so it was funny that I was now coming to her saying like, let's do sex education. But of course it's different than what she was doing as, you know, with her adult work. Yes. And then she just did it. So her, like, it wasn't that I said, I mm. like, like the fact that the bodies are all these kind of non-human colors, right? Mm -hmm. So they're very bright pinks or purples or blues. Mm -hmm. That's just her style. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I really need to ask her because I'm getting asked about this a lot. You know, my take on that, that like, like, what I like about it is that it makes the work both sort of quite realistic, but also kind of surreal. Yeah. Right? And, and that's what I want because part of the, uh, you know, the job or the enterprise of these books is to make sex education, to make it clear that sex education is not primary science, primarily a science lesson, mm. right? Those are the things that that's what we usually do, right? So usually we think sex education is telling people how you make a baby so that therefore you don't make one when you're too young, whatever mm -hmm. that means and also how not to get a disease. And that's a part of sex education. And for most people, it's the only part they get, but it is a tiny part of sex education. It is not what young people want to know about. It's not what adults want to know about either. They want to know about relationships. They want to know about their body. They want to know about feelings. Mm. So our books are about all that stuff. So there's not a lot of science. I mean, you know, the first book, What Makes a Baby, is actually much more scientific than the other ones mm -hmm. because it doesn't tell this fake story, but it presents it in a narrative way, right? So instead of saying like the, you know, the sperm penetrate the egg or anything, it's like the, the sperm and the egg dance, right? Because in mm -hmm. fact, that is more scientifically accurate that both sperm and egg are active participants in fertilization. So the style is just her style. And it works because again, I mean, like she is someone who's like fat and has been involved in kind of fat art and activism for mm -hmm. years and years and has been a feminist art maker forever. And was that at a time when there were far fewer feminists who had any power <laughs> in the commercial art market or in the comics making market. So luckily things have changed a lot. She has way more colleagues now, but because of that, her style fits with the, what we're trying to do. The other thing is that we, you know, I want the content in the books to reflect people's actual lives. And what's great is that Fiona knows how to draw people's lives, right? So, so the books, 
they're just full of people. So they're not like at no point are we like, you know, making a checklist of the kinds of diversity bodies that we need. When I tell her, when I ask her to draw a picture of a group of people, this is what she delivers. It's just amazing stuff. It's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, mean, it's because she's so great. So it's it's her mind. I think also it's reflective of the fact that she has been a working artist in Toronto, Canada forever. Mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 or 30 years, maybe even more. And so this which is what Toronto looks like. Right? So really, like if you go to a street corner, if you go to a busy park, um, you're going to see what it looks like in our books. She's drawing the world that she's seeing, right? As opposed to the world, you know, of course, it all depends on who's making the work. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that like as someone who grew up in New York, like a huge mm-hmm. metropolis, <laughs> right? Like so much of art is just not at all reflective of like even just like growing up, going on the subway and like the exactly yeah, yeah all of the different people who were represented just in my day to day life, like commuting to and from school, right? Yeah. And like how many like yeah, I I love the idea of like getting rid of a checklist and like just seeing like who am I encountering in my day to day life and is that reflected in the art work that I'm creating. Um, I think that that's a really important question outside of like, you know, the DEI, like how do we (laughs) like diversity and inclusion? It's like, no, just like step outside and think more purposefully about who you're encountering and what Mm -hmm. the like landscape of humans looks like for you on a day-to-day basis. And you'll see that it's probably a lot more quote unquote diverse than the media you're consuming. Um, And like, where is that disconnect and why is that disconnect so hard to recognize, I think, is a question, too. Um, and I loved what you said about, like, the kind of surrealism of the art, because mm-hmm. it's, it's. I mean, these topics are very grounded. Like, the experience of reading books like this that are talking about our bodies is, you know, this book is speaking about my body and, like, some mm-hmm. experiences that I'm having with my body and what's more grounded as a writing practice than speaking directly to the reader about what they're experiencing in the thing that we are confined <laughs> to as humans, right? And right. so I love that, like, this, like, surrealism of the art, like, gets a little silly, right? And, right, I, and right. I think it's, like, it's not about, like, making it fun necessarily, but, like, about getting out of our heads and, like, saying, like, bodies are weird humans are weird you're Mm -hmm. probably going through a weird thing i'm going through a weird thing how can we make this relatable isn't the right word and like fun isn't the right word but like enjoyable right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. how can we put joy into this world when there's a lot about our bodies that can be tough right and i and Mm -hmm. i think that brings me to like um you as far as I know about your work, you're pretty deeply embedded in the disability justice community. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, And I would love to hear a little bit more about how you've brought that lens to this work in particular, because I think the queerness and the transness of it all um, is very, very prevalent. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the disability justice lens on it is there very visually and in your language as well. And I want to hear a little bit more about how that's impacted as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, more than the fact that I grew up with a father who was a sex therapist um, and a mom who's a librarian. Oh, well, that makes your work make so much sense. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that's, those two things are true. But even more than that, I think in terms of the books themselves, like the content of the books and how they're conceptualized, it's my relationships like in disability community mm-hmm. and like learning. So I, you know, was lucky that my earliest mentors were disabled women, mm-hmm. a few in particular, who kind of took me in <laughs> and let me be part of their world and community. And I'm one of these people that, you know, so for many years, I, 
my sex education, I wrote a book about and talked about disability. And so the funny thing about disability is, as an identity is that it's an identity that if you're lucky to live long enough, you're going to become part of it. And that's where I am now. So I didn't used to understand, I didn't used to call myself disabled. I mm. used to call myself currently non-disabled. Mm -hmm. um, now I think I experience myself as disabled and it's a word I use for myself. When you're non-disabled, I'll say, often you can kind of go through life. I mean, getting your body through life is not easy, right? So we all experience pains and we all experience distraction, but you more or less ignore stuff to a point. And, and if you're non-disabled, you might be able to kind of get through. You might be able to get through an eight-hour workday where you're sitting in a chair. You don't get through it well, and you certainly don't pay attention or experience a lot of joy throughout <laughs> all those eight hours mm -hmm. by ignoring your body. Yep. So when you're disabled, it's just harder to ignore your body and your mm. body-mind, right? So there's this term body-mind, which comes from disability community, which is a reminder that, in fact, we can't separate our bodies and minds, you know, especially as educators. I mean, it makes sense to sometimes talk about how you feel and how you think, but our minds are in our bodies. You know, our body is what connects all of it. So what we, of the many joyful things that I learn in disability community, and that's having both partners and family and friends who are disabled, is that we need to ground everything in our body and our experience of our bodies. So we need to not pretend that all bodies can do anything, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of books for kids, but also a lot of sex education says like, this is the way it works. Well, there's very little that is quote unquote, the way it works for all bodies. Mm -hmm. So how do we talk about all bodies? How do we include, how do we invite all bodies in? Again, we strip away that other stuff. We don't say, for example, sex means this, right? So for example, you know, you might talk about something like masturbation as a topic with even younger kids, because that's a behavior that a lot of kids explore. Mm -hmm. For most people, it's the first way that they explore sexual touch. And traditional definitions of that word usually are something that not all of us do. Not all of us can touch our bodies in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So you just don't describe it that way. You describe it in a different way. So for me, living in disability community makes that easy, right? So because it's not just a theory, right? So mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll share a kind of different story. So yeah. I also um, have deaf friends and I sign, I know ASL. Mm -hmm. So when you have a date with someone who's deaf and you're going to a show mm -hmm. and then they say a like in the last minute, oh, sorry, we don't have interpreters. You don't go to the show, yeah, right? If, you're, if your life isn't full of deaf or disabled people, and then you're going to go to a thing, and at the last minute they say, oh, sorry, did we not mention there's like six stairs or there's no interpreter? Mm. You then have a choice about whether or not you're going to go or not. And so people may choose to not go in solidarity or something else, or they may choose to go because they really want to go. You know, when disability is part of your life, it's just different. Right. And, and to be really clear, like it's a drag, like ableism is a drag. Ableism is a problem. Yeah. Ableism is painful and harmful to us. But that's what, what not being able to go to a show because there's no interpreters. That's ableism. It's autism. Mm. It isn't a drag, you know, for me to be in disability community. I can't imagine my life without <laughs> disabled friends and family. So, yeah, so the book, all the books are really informed by this idea well, I'll just, I'll quote Patty Byrne. So Patricia Byrne is a disability activist and artist and educator and the creative director of a organization called Sins Invalid. Mm, yes. And so there's like the, our book, our most recent book starts with a quote from her, which I, I know by heart, but I'm just going to open the book just <laughs> so I don't get it wrong. There is no right or wrong way to have a body. Mm. It's again, to speak to sort of like what you were preaching, like it's this very simple thing. And it's something that we're never told, right? We are constantly mm. being told there is a right way to have a body. The right body pays attention in class, which means makes eye contact. The right body 
learns to crawl and then walk and then run. Mm -hmm. The right body is able to hear what a parent says the first time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The wrong body is like fat or queer or black or brown mm -hmm. or disabled. There's all these ways that even again, very like, you know, well-meaning parents who don't, I mean, would never say that to their kids. Yeah. Uh, we're all surrounded by those messages. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, and I mean, especially just to call it the fat stuff. Like, I mean, first of all, some parents do tell their kids that it's wrong to be fat and it's bad to be fat and fat people are lazy or whatever. They say hateful things. Mm -hmm. But even the parents who don't, fat phobia is just so in, in, deeply in our culture that we all grew up. We all grew up with the idea that our body is the wrong body. So part of what these books are doing is just saying and showing that that's not true. Mm. It's saying and showing. We see all sorts of bodies that are having fun and are beautiful. So I don't know. That, I mean, it was a big question. I mean, so there's that. And then also there's lots of disabled characters in the book. So mm -hmm. we just see disabled people living their lives and not in any particularly special way. <laughs> there's nothing heroic about them. They're just characters, some of whom are visibly disabled. And there's there's like a deaf character in this book. And yeah. That was, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful okay. answer. No, and I think that that quote that you start the book with is just that what a powerful thing to hear mm -hmm. and read, potentially the first time you're encountering a, a book and education about your own body. I think that that is, I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to like my middle school sex ed classes and mm -hmm. like it was just such an afterthought from my school. Like I didn't like my parents weren't really people who talked a lot about sex and gender at home. And when I got in, I think it was like seventh or eighth grade, our history teacher who was not a trained sex educator in in any way, shape or form would I think once a month, one of our history periods would be like quote unquote a sex ed um wow, class okay. um, do you know why do you, what, like why the history teacher i wonder no clue okay. no idea i think that like they were like oh, this person's gonna do it this time or like uh, <laughs> hope i think that my high school has like figured it out <laughs> like they're maybe a little bit better about it now um this generation is growing up with a lot more resources than i could have even imagined at the time yeah. mm -hmm. um i just like i remember he just like didn't know what he was talking about like right. <laughs> like at, like looking back on it i'm like this was not someone who was in any way shape or form qualified to have these conversations with young people um was like you know didn't know enough about afab anatomy and like mm -hmm. what different bodies look like and different experiences and just just really bad and i think about young people today who are encountering your books and Oh, just how powerful that is. Um, and I and I and I want to go a little bit deeper into um, sex is a funny word. And sure. um, as you're kind of like follow up to your picture book. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm I'm curious because you do work with so many young people and parents. Um, have you been able to kind of like get feedback on the kids who are going from picture book into sex is a funny word and now into the new book. And I'm like, I'm really curious about what that journey is like for families kind of moving through your body of work. Cause I don't think that yeah. there are a lot of people who can say that they've been able to do that for, for young folks. I mean, not not so much with the nonfiction. Like, it's interesting. I, mm -hmm. Like, I love writing nonfiction for young people, and not mm -hmm. many people do it. And the people who do it, I think it's often very much like a way of making a living. Yeah, um, for sure. But so there are authors, like the first author that comes to mind, and I'm not in any way comparing myself to her work, because I think her work is much, much better. But uh, Grace Lynn is this children's author who I love. Mm. 
who I, I was introduced to with a board book called Dim Sum for Everyone. Mm. And she writes picture books and she writes early readers. And then she writes these beautiful, she wrote the series that I think was a national book award winner. Mm. Uh, it's a series that I don't know how you describe it. They're like fairy tales, but they're kind of, I mean, I would say YA. I mean, they're for mm. sort of like older kids. Um, and certainly me and my family are growing up with her and she's a kind of a through line. Mm. Um, I mean, it's in, I, I, to be honest, I don't have a lot of detailed stories. So I, I mean, luckily I do hear from parents a lot. And mm -hmm. so what I hear is it's great that thank you for having these different books yes. that help us. Yes. Um, I think rightly so they don't always share, like sometimes people share funny stories about mm -hmm. things kids say, but it is nice. It's exciting. I mean, it's, it, it was, I mean, once I did the first one, it was very, I, I knew I wanted to do many and mm -hmm. Fiona and I want to keep going. Like we want to keep going until we have one that is, you know, about menopause and death yeah. because they're just, because the books, like they aren't for us. They don't work for us. Also, the other thing is that like the comic form is so great and rich and mm -hmm. powerful. And so, so many books for, I mean, you know, what's funny is I will say what I do hear a lot from parents is that they learn stuff from the books. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear to me that part of that is the form, right? Mm -hmm. That like, that there's something about reading a book for young people, the way that it's written, um, that it's so clear, that just allows a lot of adults to take in information that in a book that's like a bigger book and it's all words, either they don't even read it, they buy it and they read the first two pages, or they're reading it, but but they're also doing a kind of paranoid reading where they're reading mm. it and they're like looking for things, looking for the problems. It's like, mm. yes, but. Whereas with, you know, comics, I just feel like they're so easy to fall into mm -hmm. that even though you're not going to, not everything in the book is going to fit for you. I find when I'm talking to adults and when I'm watching adults read, I'll, I should explain that in a second, but that they are much more open to the information. That it's, mm. to me, it's like, I, I don't think I'll, I don't know if I'll ever write a book that just has words in it. Are you tired of tablets? Keep learning simple with Oak Meadow's book-based experiential pre-K through 12 curriculum, delighting home learners since 1975. Oak Meadow provides the high-quality, child-centered education you need to give your child a happy, successful life. They're one of just a few providers of secular, non-religious homeschooling curriculum. Their curriculum is Waldorf-inspired, especially in the younger grades. It's flexible and can be adapted to center each child's individual passions, curiosities, and educational needs. An Oak Meadow education is academically complete. It covers the four academic subjects, math, science, social studies, and English, as well as art, music, and health. You can learn more at oakmeadow.com. Thanks to Oak Meadow for sponsoring this podcast. The Peepkins is a new kids and family podcast arriving just in time for those long holiday road trips. With stories full of adventure, lots of laughs, and lessons galore, this show is engaging, delightful, and stars the talented Anna Ferris, Malik Pancholi, and Diedrich Bader. Join quirky Commander Hatch along with her fearful but determined best friend Noah as they go on adventures and lift the town's spirits all while trying to melt the icy heart of the menacing villain Baron Von Torius. So, whether you're looking to avoid that age-old question, are we there yet? On your long road trip or simply listening together at home, activate your imaginations and enjoy a perfect audio experience for the whole family. Follow and listen to the Peepkins where you're listening right now. So I should also say that that the way that we write these books is very collaborative. So for each book, I work on drafts for years. So this last book took seven years. Whew. And part of that is like a couple of years. 
is spent reading drafts with families. Mm. So I actually go, this last book was a bit complicated because you know the last bit of reading happened during the pandemic. But at the mm. beginning I got to go, I literally go, like I have these binders, you know, so we make almost like a zine. Mm -hmm. So Fiona does sort of black and white illustrations to this basic text that gets cut out and put, put on pages. And then I go to people's houses with this binder and ask them just to read. And then I watch. Cool. Um, and then we talk a little bit about it. And it's my favorite part of the process. I like it much more than writing. That's really, <laughs> um, no, that's really cool. I love, yeah. I love that that's a part of your process is like getting that feedback. And also, um, I mean, it's so obvious that parents read picture books along with their mm -hmm. young children, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily true true of early readers, middle grade books, and especially sex ed related books. I, I feel like that's, I mean, for me, it was like, here's a book, go off into your right. room and, <laughs> and go process that information. Figure it out. Yeah, right. exactly. Figure it out. Um, so I'm, I'm so curious about what the conversations are like around, particularly sex is a funny word in your newest mm -hmm. book, uh, around sharing the experience of reading the book as a family. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it really is kid to kid, right? Mm, so yeah. so there are kids who love to read with their parents mm -hmm. and then at all ages, mm -hmm. and there's kids that don't. I mean, I think most kids like reading early on, but mm -hmm. by like six, seven, eight, some kids like the power of reading and they mm -hmm. want to do it on their own first and other kids like to do it with parents. And mm -hmm. it's very clear. So it's lovely that like, you know, with sex is a funny word, the most common example, because it's the story I hear the most, is there's a page that's full of bums mm -hmm. or like, butts in, in the States. <laughs> um, and so it's been the anatomy section. And it's just a story I hear over and over again from parents, which is that they, when they're reading it with their kids, their kids like to like to say like, which one is like them and which one is, which one looks like one of their parents or the other parent or their sibling. <laughs> oh my God, amazing. Um, so it's like, find, find the butt that is yours. <laughs> um, and it's a lovely thing because sex is a weird thing to talk about because we treat it so differently. It's not yes. in and of itself so weird, but there's all sorts of conversations that do feel a bit weird or awkward between mm -hmm. parents and children. So part of the thing is like, let's find the space, let's find the topics that are not like that, right? So another example I give a lot is like crushes, right? So it's, mm -hmm. I don't think parents should be talking to their kids about their sex lives. That's a boundary that we need yeah. to hold. I think though that parents can sometimes be confused about like if they wanna be quote unquote progressive mm -hmm. or positive in a way they think they're supposed to share more than they are. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's stuff that we don't share and that we learn either in, in a different way or sometimes on our own. Like I can't imagine, for example, ever writing a book for kids that explains the mechanics of sex. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll say, I mean, that, that, that is often the accusation that like that yes. this book is teaching kids how to masturbate. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's not. It doesn't tell people how to do any of that. Yeah. First of all, there's so many different ways that people do it that I don't even know how, what I would say, mm -hmm. but also that's not my job. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. If a parent wants to do that, they can, but also I'm not even sure that they should either. Mm -hmm. So it is about finding these, where are the locations where we can talk about bodies and pleasure, mm -hmm. you know, and joy and also pain mm -hmm. and like discomfort. And so the bum page ends up uh, being a common one in the sex of any word. So, so, <laughs> so what I hear a lot from parents is that the other comment that I hear a lot is that, like, I bought the book, I put it on the kitchen table and it disappeared and it hasn't reappeared. <laughs> right. So kids mm -hmm. also, it's funny, like, like you were sent to your room with this book. Other kids make the choice. Now yeah. sometimes kids make the choice of like, no, I want to go read this on my own. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like we talk about like, well, there's good, it's good to check in about mm -hmm. like, are there questions or the things that didn't make sense or the things mm -hmm. that, you know, that didn't fit, you know, cause the other thing I'll share about the process of reading with families as I'm writing is, is the thing that makes it so rich is of course, when is when families say, well, you missed something or like, you know, this doesn't fit for us. Um, or, or why isn't there this point in the book mm -hmm. as well? 
Um, and that is so, I mean, our book, my, our books are all just so much better because other people helped us write them. Mm-hmm. But I think it's what's so useful about having a book because in our world, sex is this weird thing. And so is gender to have an object that can be this thing that you pass back and forth, or that can sit in between the two of you or the three of you, or however many people are talking mm-hmm. is just very useful. Mm-hmm. And even like the books, all the books that I had that didn't work for me, Part of the problem was that my parents didn't ever think to say like, what doesn't work, right? So Mm -hmm. I know a lot of parents before we had written this puberty book who were using these other puberty books that are super gender normative, erase trans experience, certainly erase like intersex bodies and fat Mm -hmm. bodies and disabled bodies. But they'll use the books to say with, uh, they'll often use them with queer kids and say like, Mm -hmm. so so read this and like, let's talk about what they got wrong, Mm. which is very useful, right? So the book is still useful, even if the book is actually kind of erasing us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In picture books, I call it Sharpie activism. (laughs) Okay. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Going in and just like being like, okay, like how can we teach media criticism to young kids, like just through the queer lens of like our experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting. I love that you said Sharpie activism because because both adults and kids have such a taboo around uh, defacing books. Mm, right? They're mm-hmm. so told. And I actually had this conversation with a friend who she'd read What Makes a Baby. She loved it, or sorry, they loved it. Um, and they also said, I couldn't read this with a kid in my life because that story about when they were born is so painful mm. um, that this book would be this book would be harmful to them. Yeah. Um, and but then and that so then I said, well. So change that part, right? Like, and like literally like get a green piece of paper, yeah. like just change the words. And they were like, oh, okay. And I think partly because I wrote it, they thought I wouldn't say that. But also, I, you know, we are told not to write in books, but absolutely yes. we can write in books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, when you're working with young children, this, you got to be careful around there because you don't yeah. want them to write in all the books in all the ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But some rules are meant to be broken. Yeah, I think like, yeah, there's a fine line between like respect for a piece of art that's mm-hmm. and like a piece of someone's work, but mm-hmm. also like it's important to remember that like these books were just made by other humans mm-hmm. the and and humans and all of us are fallible and flawed and nothing we make as humans is ever going to be perfect because what right. is perfection anyways right. Right. um and like yeah we're making things that are for a mass market and we're trying to be as general but also as specific as possible and there's a line there's a fine line to be struck about that and that's really hard and like it's Mm -hmm. just not going to fit everyone all the time in perpetuity and we can't as creators put that pressure on ourselves either i mean it sounds like you do take that very seriously and very purposely seven years to write a book (laughs) is no joke (laughs) um but i think you're thinking very very deeply about like what is i've been liking the term age relevant um Mm -hmm. and like how is this going to function in a home? And how is this going to be a resource for this age group, for this community? And how can I be as, not just like as inclusive as possible, but how can I filter this through as many lenses as I can to make it as like, as close to like the universal truth of it all as possible. Mm -hmm. Cause like, that's Mm -hmm. what I love about kids media, right? Mm -hmm. Is like that it, you can speak to these like universal truths that really come down to the core of human experience, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that like kind of adult facing media can't in a lot of ways. so I don't know. I'm just musing. But yeah, I'm. I'm. I would love to get to your newest book as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about that. 
Um, so the newest new one is called, you know, sex and it's um, much bigger. So it's 432 pages, Ooh. but it's a, but it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, continues to be quite easy to read and, mm-hmm. and kids will just read through it in a, in a, a astonishing pace, but it's really meant as more of a resource, something that mm-hmm. you go to, you know, so you can move in and out of it's who it's for is kids who either have themselves started to experience puberty yeah. or who have like a significant number of their peers who have. I find that like talking about puberty with kids who aren't feeling it in their body yet and aren't seeing it around them, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's like talking about some alien planet. Um, <laughs> so that's who it's for. So, I mean, you know, the publisher says it's for kind of kids 10 and up, but of course for some kids that's like eight or yep. nine. Yep. And for some kids it's older, it's 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. So one of the, you know, the mixed blessing, uh, I think is what you call it, of having a publisher who's very supportive is that, I think in the book proposal it was supposed to be 120 pages or something. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, there's just a lot to say, right? Yeah. So in this book, there's a chapter on trauma and there's mm-hmm. a chapter, there's, a, there's a, a whole section on power and safety and there's stuff about a lot of stuff about ableism, but also racism and also sort of other forms of structural violence and oppression mm-hmm. and bodies and relationships and joy and consent and all these other things. There's a chapter on pornography, which is very mm-hmm. necessary yeah. these days. It's the third book I've written, created with Fiona, and certainly like to the point of like things aren't perfect. It's I think it's I, I'm now getting there. Like in terms of the, the amount of responsibility I take for other people, which is a very mm-hmm. kind of like misguided white thing to do. I think it's the one where I finally like was like, okay, well this is the best I can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now that it's out, and I've been reading it with other people, already being given the gift of like this would be a, there's another way to do this, or you, you know, the, like seeing seeing what's missing. Yeah. Which is also, I mean, I'm happy to say like, it's no longer, like it's not upsetting to me. It's actually, I, when people tell me this stuff, as long as they do it in a kind way, right? When mm-hmm. people are being mean, then it hurts my feelings. But if yeah. they're not being mean, then it's a kind of a gift. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's, people seem to like it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, I think, uh, what else is there to say? There's so much that we've covered already. And like, I, I admire your books so, so much. And the way that your books are raising today's young people, I think is um, is something that is so, so important and something that I wish that I hadn't. Hopefully, I think a lot of our listeners <laughs> are probably in the, in the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's where yeah. it all mm-hmm. comes from, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm thinking a lot about like healing my inner tween and inner teen right now. And I'm kind of like in the back of my head, I'm like, I should reread <laughs> Sex is a Funny <laughs> Word and read your new book because there's probably, yeah, like you're saying, like adults learning a lot from this stuff too because there are things that we were not taught still not exactly still not and there are things that these are not lenses that we've been brought up through and it's a little bit of like a mind boggle moment to like go back and fill those gaps and say oh my gosh like what would it have been like if i had had access to that information at the right age and like and and something i want to get into with a little bit is like because you've been writing kind of at these three different age points in a life i'm really curious about how you think about i mean less so for what makes a baby because it's less like topic sectioned out Mm -hmm. um it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like one question and you answer it through a story Mm -hmm. um but the other two books I'm curious how you like decided what you were going to cover and what made something age relevant for that book in particular. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I didn't cover everything that's age relevant. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, for, totally. so for example, 
the truth is that there should have been something about pornography in the in the in sex is a funny word because mm. the age at which kids are unsupervised on the internet whether it's youtube or anything yeah is the age at which we they should know the word pornography and they should know a thing or two about what it is mm. because i i believe that it has a kind of protective effect when we give kids language about the stuff that they're going to counter that may feel uncomfortable or be harmful to them. I think it really depends, but certainly I think it can be harmful to see. And it certainly is usually uncomfortable to see when you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But I didn't put it in, in part because the book was already too long. And also in part because, you know, I, I'm writing for young people and I'm centering young people and not their parents and their parents' mm -hmm. anxieties. Yes. But I'm mindful that I need parents to be partners in this. Yes. So I just wasn't sure how I would do that for such a young audience in a way that parents would stay on board and not just close the book. Yeah. Um, well, and that's an important point. And I just want to interject really quickly yeah, because yeah, that's that's something that like when I was making queer kid stuff, like was something that was very on my mind of mm -hmm. like, how is this going to be perceived? And like, are grownups ready for me to use anatomically correct language in a preschool targeted show? Right? right. And so like that was, and like, I was also undergoing like a lot of harassment. Like it's a very queer centered show <laughs> and yeah. talking about anything body and like sex ed related immediately becomes stigmatized when you yes. put it through the lens of queerness and transness. And I don't know if I was like ready to have all of those conversations when I was making that. Um, so I put like disclaimers in front of it and like I was just trying to contextualize it and and figure out how to present it because I felt like conversations around consent, like at this point, like no brainer, like so, so important for a preschool audience. And then getting into conversations around what is correct body language to use with young people? How do we talk about trans bodies while we're using appropriate body language? And it I'm it was scary to I, yeah. like like legitimately to put those episodes up because of how stigmatized it is. So I'm I really I really feel you yeah. on that anxiety. Um, yeah, I don't I mean you know everyone does everyone works in their own way. So there's mm -hmm. lots of I think there's people who write books for kids about gender who are doing it because they have a story they want to tell or they have a perspective mm -hmm. they want to share and that's the point of the book is yes. to share their thing. I'm an educator, you know, I only recently have thought of myself as an author mm. because I'm mostly interested in conveying information. I'm mostly interested mm. in people getting information in a way that works for them, not my story being told or my voice being heard. Mm. So I'm not going to do something that is going to make it very difficult for people to access what I'm doing, mm. which also means that I don't like, like there's a kind of a certain form of radicalism or um, progressivism or something mm -hmm. that isn't in my work because I'm very interested in making work that can connect with all kinds of kids and all kinds of families. Mm. So anyway, I mean, I've had that experience too, and it's not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to hear you talk about like being an educator first and foremost, and then author yeah. kind of coming to you as, as something um, that maybe wasn't your primary way of thinking about yourself. Right. And it's interesting because I feel like I have the opposite experience because I, I come from story and my, my like undergrad degrees in theater. Like I very mm. much come from storytelling and have kind of stumbled into the educator side of things right, and right. into the activism side and organizing. Um, it wasn't what I was initially moving into and has kind of become this like beautiful thing that I've learned about and have had wonderful collaborators and community around educational spaces, but it's not necessarily like my primary 
functionality right, right. and like figuring that out is also hard too and yeah. like <laughs> yeah well and it's and it's like whenever i go like i so i wrote my book um that's coming out in may it's called mm-hmm. rainbow parenting it's like a parenting guide for kind of bringing your kids up in like a queer and gender affirming way and Exciting. yeah <laughs> but it was like it just it took so much out of me it mm-hmm. was such a pull and such a a hard thing to write because it was something that I like, I, it was basically like, this is the guide that I'm writing for like my parents when they were like pregnant with me. And like, I wish they had as a resource Mm -hmm. to raise a queer trans non-binary kid. And that's what I'm hoping to give to the world. But I, I'm a storyteller. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like wanting to, help and guide people through those conversations is so meaningful to me, but also like figuring out how to provide the information in this kind of way. It wasn't something that came supernaturally to me. And I'm, and I'm curious about as you were moving into authorship and understanding yourself as an author, I, I'm I'm really curious about that journey because it sounds like we kind of come from opposite sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as part of it is like learning to take responsibility mm. for what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. So because and for putting stuff on a page. So I so before you know, sex came out. A friend of mine, his name is Keith Corthran, who's an adult writer of fiction and also a playwright and brilliant. Um, her second novel came out, which is called Moon in the Mars, and it's. I mean, it's sweeping and it's amazing and I recommend all adults read it. Mm. And I was reading it and I was so, I just like, I, you know, I, sometimes you have this experience of like reading something and you're like, I can't even understand how this is being done. And it's not like an intellectual thing. It's like yeah. this very visceral, like it's joyful and sometimes it's hard and you're crying, but it's just mm. like, how are the, I recognize the words on the page, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of the words. I mean, that's the magic of human creativity, right? Yeah, right. And also it was, it's, it's a big book and there's so much that's in it. Mm. And I did have this moment of like having this, like, you know, this feeling that we do, I think with people who we really look up to, which is like, like she is a genius. And also realizing like, oh, also she just got it done, right? Yeah. She just kept writing yep. through hard things. And I realized like, oh, right. So, cause it took seven years to make this book. It's also like, I just didn't stop. Um, mm. but part of that also is like taking responsibility. I did make these choices. So, mm-hmm. you know, your earlier question about like what, what ends up in the book, that's, I think that that's where the author, I mean, it's, it's an educator thing as well, but yeah. feeling like I'm an author is about deciding that like, you know what, I'm not going to put, for example, there's nothing but intercourse and sex is a funny word. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about the, in fact, there's nothing about where, how you make babies. There's nothing about reproduction. It's a hundred and something page book about sex and gender for seven to nine year olds that doesn't talk about reproduction, mm-hmm. which is not the, it's like, I, I think it's the only book that does that right now. And th- yeah. there will be more, which is going to be great. But at the time when we wrote it, I don't think anyone had done it. And it's just about having an, you know, being able to explain why I'm doing it. It's not that it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So for me, I think that kind of journey and part of it is also, I just keep doing it. Right. So this is the yeah. thing that Lots of writing teachers tell you, which is like, if you want to be a writer, just write, mm-hmm. right? And write a lot, like write mm-hmm. every day. But for me, writing is hard and boring and solitary. So I don't like to do it. Yeah, I fair. Prefer that's talking. fair. I prefer talking to people. <laughs> yeah. um, so now I've done it. Now I've done it four times mm-hmm. and I want to do it again. I mean, there's, I have, I, I'm working on new books. I mean, it's also part of the myth, like the thing that we're both, it sounds like trying to break down mm-hmm. is that like, you have to be some kind of special person to be an author. Like, mm-hmm. no, you don't actually, Mm-mm. you just have to write a book. Yep. And then if you find someone to publish it, that's great. But also these days you can publish it yourself. Yep. It can have access to millions and millions of readers. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's hard to figure out like how you get their attention, all these other things. 
But if what you want to do is make a book or write a story, you can do it. Um, and certainly it's funny, like this week, I'm going to go into some classrooms um, for the first time in a long time to be live. It's very little kids. And so it's not really going to be doing sex education, but it's going to be talking about making books. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the thing I want everyone to know is like, you can make a book. Anyone can make a book. Yeah. You don't have to look like this. You don't have to talk a certain way. No, but it's a, I think it's a great point because I think that like the more I've grown as an artist and a storyteller and author and on all of these things, and, and I'm someone who does one thing in a lot of different industries and spaces and a lot of mediums. And I think that like the thing that I just keep learning over and over again is that all art is just people doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just people doing things and like making decisions and like from their experience and like thinking about how they want to communicate something purposefully and to varying sizes of groups of people. And I think that you know, it's about if you have an idea, just do it. <laughs> and I think money is always a barrier. I mean, like that's mm -hmm. that's a huge, huge part of it. Financial means and being able to and I mean, that's going to give you, you know, however large your audience is going to be. And I love that you um, started all of this through a Kickstarter, right? Through mm -hmm. community organizing and community fundraising. Um, and that's how we get information out to each other, right? Is by supporting people who are working to make stuff for each other right. yeah. um and i think that it's it really just always boils down to that and i think that like that's what i many experiences doing student theater and undergraduate but like the thing that that taught me is just like here is a crummy shack that's crumbling around us. Let's pretend that it's a theater and then mm -hmm. it will be a theater. And then, mm -hmm. and you know, this piece of wood, we can put that with another piece of wood and there's a stage. And that's, and all it is, is a collective imagination mm -hmm. and working together to make that reality and then it is reality and i think that that goes for book writing i think that that goes for even making television and animation that is just is a space that i'm really in right now and is something that um is still there's so much i think you see these things go out into the world and you process them as a person watching a screen reading a book opening a package and and pulling it out and opening it with your child and it's so easy to forget the work and the time and the effort and the people that it took to get that book to you not even just the shipping but just like the <laughs> the <laughs> the like many processes that it takes and that all of those processes were constructed by people and some of them have especially with the publishing industry has hundreds of years of people constructing these infrastructures um yeah. and all of us just kind of coming in and putting our words into this into the space that exists um so to mostly wrap this up, <laughs> thank you for putting your words into that mechanism um, and giving us all of this information and resource to be able to raise young people through um, this, these incredibly important lenses for us to understand our gender identity and our bodies. Um, is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so. I feel like it was... I enjoy the conversation. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's always yeah. a good sign when people enjoy yeah. talking to me. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, cool. So now's the time to plug and tell us what you're up to and, and where we can find you and your books and all that stuff. Um, well, the books are available every, kind of everywhere. So you can find them in independent bookstores and on, on, on all the big online places. 
Um, <clears throat> I have a website, which is just my name, CoreySilverberg.com. You know, right now I'm really just trying to write. Um, I do, but I, you know, mostly what I do is I, I talk. So I, I give talks to parents and I sometimes talk to young people and I talk a lot to professionals. So I don't have a particular thing. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, I always hear from people and then sometimes I work with them and yes. And then when I have more time to write, then I'll be able to talk about what I'm writing next. But right now I just need to write. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In the weeds with it. I love that. Yes. yes. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. I so appreciate it. If anyone, um, if you don't already have your own copy of what makes a baby one, go out and get it. And two, um, I did, a reading of it on Queer Kid Stuff way back when. It's like a produced Queer Kid Stuff episode. So if people want to go back and watch that and revisit that, um, highly recommend. And then obviously get that book on your shelves and the rest of the books and you can raise your children with Corey's beautiful words and resources. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you so, so much, Corey. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, boy. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Corey Silverberg just as much as I did. What an incredible, incredible resource their books are. I will continue to go to them for years on end, and I hope you will too. Make sure you go and buy Corey's books, What Makes a Baby, Sex is a Funny Word, and their newest book, You Know Sex. Just a great little collection to have on your bookshelf for your kiddos and the young folks in your life. As always, you can find me on social media at Linz Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. You can find all of our work through Queer Kid Stuff at Queer Kid Stuff, just one kid, Queer Kid Stuff, on Instagram, Twitter, all of the places. Don't forget to pre-order the Rainbow Parenting book. I don't think that would be a bad holiday gift for someone, especially if they're expecting in the new year. I'll see you the next two Mondays for our last two episodes of the season. We've got some pretty cool guests coming up. I've got Tuck Woodstock of Gender Reveal Podcast fame. We're going to talk about uh, why the New York Times hates trans kids. A uh, real fun topic there. And I'm also going to be talking to Carla Bergman, who edited the compilation of essays called Trust Kids that I'm really, really excited to talk about. It is a beautiful book, and uh, I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> so that should be a really great conversation. We're talking a lot about trans kids and youth autonomy. So make sure you tune in the next two Mondays before we go into hiatus between seasons. All right. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.